This is Missing Persons Uncovered, where we uncover the depth and complexities of this global issue. Every year, millions of people go missing worldwide. I'm Karen Shalev-Green, a researcher specializing in missing persons at the University of Portsmouth, UK. And I'm Caroline Humer, a global child protection expert. Across this series, we hope to raise awareness of this issue, discuss how societies can support vulnerable people better, and give you the insight into how you can protect your community and family. Today, we look at ways to support the family of the missing person, explore the impact of missing individual can have on siblings and parents, and offer some insights into dealing with both short-term and long-term cases. Sarah Whelan works with the Australian Federal Police, providing evidence-based support through counselling for families left behind and through her work, identified that traditional grief and loss ideas don't fit well with relatives of missing people. When someone goes missing, it's such a public discussion when media or the community is involved. And so families do have to demonstrate that they have one narrative, one story that they want to share. And sometimes that can mean that voices are silenced. Lauren Keefe's younger brother, Dan, went missing in 2011 and her initial media campaign to find him resulted in her founding the Missing Persons Advocacy Network, or MPAN. It's one of those experiences, I think, that can really strain relationships within a family unit and or it can really strengthen the bond by having that that shared experience together but again it really depends there are so many variables. Both Sarah and Lauren are based in Australia and bring their unique perspective to the conversation a perspective that has similar implications around the world. Karen started her conversation with Sarah and Lauren by asking them to give a snapshot of the missing persons process in Australia. Here's Sarah. In Australia at the moment, there's about 51,000 reports made to police each year about the safety and well-being of a missing person. So that's someone whose whereabouts are unknown and there are concerns for their safety. In terms of those cases, if we're thinking in the UK, in terms of relation to our population size, it's about the same incidents. We seem to find that primarily it's women reported more regularly than men, but only marginally. We have almost 2,600 long-term missing persons cases in Australia, and there's always a number of outstanding cases each year. I think what's also important to recognise is that in Australia, about a quarter of missing persons reports relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, so our First Nations community, who both experience not only health vulnerabilities, but sometimes a different response or a different relationship with police. So they're more likely to go missing than any other population group. And we also have a number of Australians who are missing overseas. I wonder if, Lauren, if you can give us a little bit of first-hand experience, but also from working with and talking to other families, obviously, what that's like to make a report to police. 
I didn't report my brother missing to police in the first instance. It was my parents who made that call. So it was a matter of hours after they had last seen Dan that they made the report to the local police, which was, even from my position, just completely surreal. It's not one of those experiences that you are ever prepared to find yourself in. It's something that we see in the movies and that is not at all realistic. I think we have these expectations of police immediately deploying a team with dogs and drones and choppers and the the whole shebang. But in reality, at least for us in our circumstance at that time, which was 11 years ago now, in a context where my brother was an adult male the circumstances around his disappearance weren't deemed to be suspicious. We didn't actually get the police over to mum and dad's until the third day that Dan was missing and they only came as a response to local media that had picked up the story. But sadly, that's something that's quite common amongst the families that I work with. But having said that, there certainly has been an improvement in those last 11 years now. And I think the more that people understand that it is a myth that you have to wait a certain period of time and that non-suspicious cases aren't necessarily going to get the police resources allocated to them. That has changed, at least here in our state in Australia. And that's, of course, encouraging to see. So what is it like for someone reporting a missing person in those initial stages? Lauren speaks again from her own experience. It's pretty disheartening, to be honest. Again, because we have these unrealistic expectations based on what we've seen on TV shows and in movies. And obviously, it's a very distressing time. You are immediately extremely vulnerable. You're worried sick. You're panicked. You're not thinking clearly. You're not sleeping. You're running off pure adrenaline. And you do have to consider whether or not you go public. In those first few hours and days, it's a really conflicting decision because on one hand, you feel you need everyone on planet Earth to be looking out for your loved one. But of course, you have to consider what the response may be, how vulnerable it may make your loved one if they were to return, because nowadays, especially, Google doesn't forget things. And so it's a lot to be stressed about simultaneously, again, in a scenario that you are not prepared for. So yeah, it's awful. I don't think anyone, again, is ever thinking that that could possibly be their reality. It's just something that we we see in shows and films, and you would never expect to find yourself in that position. I want to spend some time understanding a little bit what that's like when you have the sense the person is missing. How do you come to that realization where you give yourself the definition of that person is missing? And then what happens to us emotionally, physically? What's the impact of that? Our family knew that something um, was seriously wrong when Dan didn't arrive to teach a class that night. So it was almost immediately after learning that from his girlfriend that the report was made to police. But still, it was a blur for us. But I remember putting the very first poster of hundreds that we'd printed out at my sister's office and put on telegraph poles in our hometown and seeing Dan's face with the word missing atop it was when it really hit, I think, for me. Mm -hmm. 
I think in those first, that first month in particular, almost the first week, is that there's a constant bargaining that I used to notice from families, that it would be this time tomorrow we'll have worked this out. This time next week we'll be laughing about the fact that we couldn't find this person and they'll be back and everything will be okay. Or there's planning and navigating around what the support or referral pathways might need to be for the missing person. This time we'll get them the support they need. This time we'll seek out a mental health appointment for them, a physical health appointment for them. We'll truly understand perhaps just at what risk they were at and we'll do all of those things when we come back. So there's that constant bargaining and anxiety and that deep unsettling dread of what if I don't find them by the end of tonight? What happens if tomorrow I have to get up and keep doing this again? So Lauren touched on those points about running on adrenaline, seeking out all of the avenues. I also think families of short-term missing people have to put themselves in really at-risk situations as well. Searching in places they've never been to before, travelling to different locations, speaking to people on the street, trying to connect with services that perhaps they had no understanding of how those services worked before. And I think one of the significant traumas for families is sometimes this is their very first engagement with police. This is the first time they've had to navigate that system. So it's a complete assault on all of the senses. On top of that, the physical impacts of anxiety and stress mean there's no sleeping, there's no nutrition. So telling people rest look after yourself, make sure you eat something nice is almost like saying, learn to do a cartwheel and learn a new language while you're waiting for someone to come back. I think it's entirely impossible. The definition of long-term missing, as we use it, is more than 28 days because most people are found within this time frame. So having talked about the short-term effect of a loved one going missing, how does that compare to a longer period? Here's Lauren on her experience. I was fortunate enough to be in a position in my life where I could drop everything and do everything possible to try and find Anne. And so then that allowed me to stay in that space of being constantly stressed out and liaising with the police and the media and all the weirdos that come out of the woodwork when they've got ideas about where Dan might be. And living that reality for me, that went on for really until I stepped back and focused on starting Empan. So it's interesting that that concept of the difference between short and long term, I think it really does depend on the individual. I always knew that if families were reaching out to me for counselling and someone had been missing for a month or more, I'd kind of think, you know what, I might be seeing this person for a while. I never said that to families. It wasn't my place to say, look, you know, if they're not back now, they might not come back in a quick amount of time. But I think that procedurally, we often think about the short-term tasks that are needed and then the longer-term tasks will be different but I think the emotional impact remains that stress anxiety response for quite a long time. When I was providing counselling, all families kept coming to me with was this idea that people had told them to hold on to hope at all costs. And they felt almost locked into the idea rather than something that was natural to them. And so after so many years of working face to face with families and trying to think what else could I offer, 
the question around what is the experience of hope meant that I kind of went back in time and looked at all of the theories of hope that had been used in other places. And I'd seen that since kind of like the 1980s internationally, hope had kind of become like a positive psychology movement about it being hope-filled narratives rather than initially what it was intended to be, that those navigations of hopefulness and hopelessness, that it was about the peaks and troughs of life. And so when I went to the participants of my PhD and said, you know, what does hope mean to you? They talked about hope being a really teasing journey, that it was something that was always dangled in front of them. But it also meant that they were so intent on holding on to hope that they also had a hangover from that hope because they were wishing so much for a better outcome. And that each day that they woke up and were reminded that the answers to their questions weren't forthcoming, that they had to keep repetitively finding the energy to put their story out there, to seek out the police, to hope that this birthday, this Christmas, this religious milestone, that those times would bring that person back and how exhausting it was for them. So I think it really made me consider what happens when we kind of provide throwaway lines to people like, I'll hold on to hope for you, or you've got to keep hoping, or what are you hoping for even? They provide really mixed emotions to people and they don't allow families of missing people to talk about the living realities of what it means to not know where someone is. We talked a little bit about the emotional impact, obviously, but there's practical issues. So Lauren, do you want to tell us a little bit about what kind of practical issues family often end up dealing with? So in the immediate aftermath of someone disappearing, there's the life stuff on top of the search stuff. So with life, you've still got work commitments. Not everyone's able to just leave work and drop everything and search for their loved one. They've still got things to do. They've got bills to pay. They've got domestic duties. And then on top of all of that, of course, they've got the search-related tasks of liaising with the police, liaising with the media, dealing with, hopefully, volunteers who will want to help you distribute posters or search or whatever it is. And so there's an enormous amount of practical tasks that need doing really in that context instantaneously. So it's really important that people do support as they can in any of those ways. And they will, of course, change over time when in the short term you've got posters and you've got all of the media, maybe longer term, you might not need as much help with the domestic duties at home, but you'll need help with paperwork regarding the legal and the financial and the administrative challenges that come with not having a, a death certificate. And then, of course, the, the search, depending on how involved you've been with publicity, you may still have to engage the public and meet with a journalist and then follow up the leads and travel around following whatever it is that can continue depending on how you respond to the disappearance. So there is certainly an enormous amount of practical assistance required to support families and friends of missing people. One of the things that people don't necessarily realise is that we often think about life in terms of life and death. Missing is neither and also in between. And in most countries, there are no laws to deal with that situation. And with the lack of a death certificate, families are often stuck in having to pay 
the bills, but without being able to sell the assets, for example, or not even have the authority to pay the bills. And the missing person is accruing a lot of debt. Can you tell us a little bit more in, in terms of Australia, for example, as to what legislation there might be? What are the needs that still are outstanding for families? I know that some states have something akin, I guess, to the Guardianship Act that you guys have over in the UK, but that doesn't happen quickly. It can take a number of years. And of course, there's a lot of paperwork involved with that. I remember hearing from a woman in Queensland here in Australia a couple of years ago, and she was already retired. She was in her late 60s, and her husband had been missing for two years, and he'd fallen off the back of a fishing trawler. And so she was unable to get this death certificate. So she had to get out of retirement, go back to work in order to continue paying the mortgage because she was worried she was going to lose their house. And that kind of stuff is just heartbreaking on top of all of the, you know, emotional and psychological trauma. It's those practical hurdles that families are left to deal with alone without that sort of legislative assistance. It's important to acknowledge that in Australia, in two of our states, We have estate management legislation in relation to missing persons where you can apply after 90 days to administer the estate of a missing person. And that's really just to make exactly what Lauren said, those guardianship decisions to make sure that what is left behind in the estate doesn't kind of fritter away or be taken by somebody else for things to be paused Western Australia is also currently looking at that type of legislation over on that side of Australia. But I think what's important to acknowledge is that, yes, there's been some small movements, and I think there's only two other jurisdictions internationally in very small places that have the same legislation. But it's usually instigated by the family member of a missing person. And let's talk family dynamics. For example, if one family member is very angry that their loved one is missing, another in the family is feeling hopeless, and the third is feeling hopeful. Sarah talks on the implications in this scenario. I think it's the same as any experience of grief and trauma, is that there is going to be an external or a public narrative around collectively what the family thinks. And then like all families, there's private individual narratives that demonstrate that not everyone is going to be on the same page at the same time. One of the significant issues with missing actually comes from um, Emeritus Professor Pauline Boss's work, not just around ambiguous loss, but on role ambiguity, where she talks about the roles that people have to play when someone is missing or absent and stepping into the space. So the child who has to step in when the parent's gone missing and navigate that area, the younger sibling stepping in when an older sibling's gone missing and having to behave as if they're that person or the only sibling who's left behind. I think that what's really difficult is that when someone goes missing, it's such a public discussion when media or the community is involved. And so families do have to demonstrate that they have one narrative, one story that they want to share. And sometimes that can mean that voices are silenced or that people feel as if they don't get an opportunity to speak about what it feels like for them. You know, if you look at media narratives around missing persons, you'll often see that the first place the media go to is the mothers who are left behind. 
I think we connect better as a community with those kind of like emotional reflections. And so often mothers are prioritised. And that inadvertently can mean that people feel that their own stories aren't heard. So I think that there's a lot of messiness that happens underneath when someone goes missing, just like in any other types of grief and trauma. I think providing people the opportunity to not necessarily come to counselling together or seek support together, but that everyone has their individual support pathways and that there's also some family support pathways. I, for my family, just naturally fell into the position of spokesperson because I didn't have the kids in the career like my sisters did. And my parents were pretty paralyzed in their shock and grief. Whereas, you know, other parents I work with now, I I see them wanting to protect their children and take the lead so that their other kids don't have that burden. It's really case by case. Some people will completely dissociate from it. Others will step up and take that leadership role. But ultimately, you know, it's one of those experiences, I think, that can really strain relationships within a family unit and or it can really strengthen the bond by having that shared experience together. But again, it really depends. There are so many variables, just like every case of a disappearance is very different. Every family dynamic is different and the way that each individual respond to the situation will differ. Is there anything you want to add about dealing with the media from the decision of you wanted to bring the media in then you are thrown into the limelight, what happens next? It's not a decision that you make in a clear mind space. (laughs) There's a desperation to it. And depending on how slow a news day it is, you may not even get the media attention in the first place. So it is a really tiring relationship to maintain, especially long-term. It's one of those necessary evils if you choose to go down that path because, you know, doing media is daunting at the best of times. So when you are having to repeatedly publicly share your grief, it takes a massive toll. Obviously, there are some outlets that do exploit vulnerable individuals and it's a matter of I guess if you are in it long term learning what your parameters are and taking ownership of your narrative so that if and when you do have a media opportunity you know what your key messages are you're not going to stray from them you're not going to give them the money shot which is always just the blubbering mess for the 10 seconds that you get you want to say clearly you know what it is that you want the public to hear but having families understand all of that, especially in the very first few days of the disappearance, is near impossible, which is why it's so important that they do have support around them that can guide these media opportunities and make sure that they are not going to be taken advantage of. I think in the beginning, we've done some analysis of Australian media, and we know that in the beginning, it's very much either driven by the police or driven by families of almost just the the snapshot details. This is the person, this is where they were seen. This is alluding to the reasons why the person might be missing. But as it goes on, the media wants more and more. They want long-form journalism. They want to be able to tell a story. They want to be able to consider how they can bring in people interested in true crime. And so you almost lose control of what it is that you originally intended to do. 
So I think that it's almost impossible to upskill families in the early days about the implications of media because you can see really clearly why they're doing it. And it's understandable. I would do it too if I was in the same position. I think as time goes on, that's where we need to talk more about the ethics of the media, about what happens when the dust settles and they want more than just, can you locate this person? I think that we really need to legislate about what we actually define as in the public interest. Because in the public interest is quickly, we need to assist in locating this person. The reasons or the mechanisms as to why they're missing does not need to be told by anybody. We can use media for community awareness in other ways around missing persons. But in the public interest doesn't mean where are they now? or let's revisit them 10 years later, or let's unearth that story. And what we see happen a lot, and it happens in the UK, it happens in Australia, where different missing persons cases are connected together and then discussed broadly about, here's the story of all of these mums on Mother's Day waiting for their loved ones to come home without any need to reconnect with families other than families seeing that story when they're lined up at the supermarket to buy their groceries. So I think that really considering the ethical question of what do we mean by in the public interest in relation to missing persons would be really important to better understand. So what are the main takeaways that Lauren feels should come from this episode of Missing Persons Uncovered? I'm always surprised to learn from families that I work with, for instance, that they don't know about certain services. A lot of this information seems to be siloed and families need people, third parties often, to tell them about it. So if you do know someone who is living with the torment of not knowing where a loved one is and you know about like this podcast or you know about the amazing Dr. Sarah Wayland, to connect them to these resources. And also, of course, the general one, which is just being compassionate. If you're an employer and your employee has a loved one go missing, give them the time and the space that they need. Be an ear for them. I think people understandably are confronted by how awkward it is to talk about grief generally, but especially an uncertain one like ambiguous loss. So trying to be comfortable in that space and letting the person who's living with it decide whether or not they want to speak about it rather than just avoiding it, I think is the general sort of takeaway. It's about pointing people in the direction of assistance because there is great stuff out there and also being there for them in any way that you can practically, of course, easing the burden, cooking them some meals, printing out some posters, whatever it is that they need at that point in time. But ultimately showing compassion is vital. And one of the things that we, Sarah and I, have done in the last couple of years with a bit of funding here and there is training mental health um, workers in ambiguous loss so that they are able to offer specialised support to families and friends of long-term missing persons here in Australia. And the benefit of that here, just with the, the scores of people that Sarah has trained and that the families that we've connected to these counsellors has been enormous. I think a lot more awareness around the fact that this is a unique type of grief that's out there that doesn't sit neatly under standard 
grief is really important to allow this community of the people who are left behind to feel seen and heard and understood and to involve them in initiatives, showing them that they're not alone in what they're experiencing and they could be part of the bigger picture and contribute to easing the load and the burden for other families who are going through something similar to them. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. Next time, we'll be joined by Beth Hodges from the charity Missing People to discuss the importance of collaboration. If you'd like to find out more about our work or any resources we mention in the show or about our guests, please go to missingpersonsuncovered.com. But if you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. I'm Karen Shalev-Green. And I'm Caroline Humer. Thank you for listening to Missing Persons Uncovered. We'll speak again next time. This episode was brought to you by the University of Portsmouth. You can find out more about how their research is changing our world for the better and supporting projects like this at port.ac.uk research.